This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The team at OncoSpark offers a unique opportunity to grow your career in the business of medicine through their virtual specialty conference series. The reality of attending conferences in person is constantly changing. We give you the opportunity to learn virtually from industry leaders in top specialties, such as obstetrics and gynecology, pediatrics, cardiology, oncology, and orthopedics. We present timely industry topics to help you navigate regulatory guidelines, best practices and coding, billing, and practice management from the experts in the field. Whether you are interested in becoming the go-to expert in your field, provide additional knowledge for your education program, or you're ready to dive into other specialties, we have you covered. We hope to see you at our 2022 events. Welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast series, brought to you by Ozark Institute, an initiative of OncoSpark, a technology-enabled revenue cycle management company, discussing your life as a medical coder, offering tips and advice for coding students and professionals. Join us every Wednesday. Hello and welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast. I am your host, Jennifer McNamara. Our goal, as always, is to bring you timely industry topics in the field of health information management, as well as tips for work-life balance. If you're a first-time listener, we thank you for listening today. And if you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Our disclaimer, as always, is that this show is not to be taken as legal or professional advice. It's based on my years of experience in the coding and billing industry, and my goal is to share with you what I've learned and why I love this industry. Today, we're digging in to a very important topic. It's Season 5, Episode 14. So you want to be a medical coder. I am joined by my special guest and colleague, Crystal Waters. We are both in the field of general surgery, and we also love coding. We love billing. We love auditing. We love provider education. We get so many questions on different forums, people asking about the medical coding industry. But we know that medical coding is just a part. It's just a small piece of the revenue cycle. And so today we're here to talk about so many questions that we're going to answer that we get. And hopefully today you're going to get some insights into the medical coding industry, the best practices uh, when it comes to deciding which credential to go for, if you should go for a credential, and be successful in this industry. So stay tuned for my interview with Crystal Waters. I want to thank our sponsors over at OncoSpark for designing a platform that streamlines and standardizes the authorization process. As we know, the barriers for practices and patients due to prior authorizations are a clinical and a clerical issue. This new tool, AuthParency, optimizes staff and resources while decreasing the time that a patient must wait. This platform will seamlessly integrate with your practice management system and your electronic health record, alerting you to expiring authorizations or order changes. Authparency's reports can also be used for internal development as well as payer and pharma accountability. 
direct insurance verification, and specialty pharmacy hub enrollment are standard modules in the platform too. So jump on over to OncoSpark.com. That's www.oncospark.com and look at their technology solutions. We're also going to put the information in our show notes. Schedule your demo for Authparency today and get started with this amazing tool. Well, as I mentioned, I have my very special guest, Crystal Waters. Welcome to the show, Crystal. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm just really excited when we had this idea, you know, we thought we'd come together today and just kind of discuss some of these issues that people have, whether they're new to coding or they're already in coding, how they can bridge this gap between being new and developing their career. Um, But also, you know, the title of our episode today is, so you want to be a medical coder. So um, we know that want to be a medical coder, we know there's reasons why you do that. So let's talk about First of all, I want to get to know our audience, get to know you a little bit better because, you know, they know me. I talk every week, but <laughs> I want to get them to know you as well. I want to know, first of all, how long have you been in healthcare? So I have been in healthcare for a long time. Um, and I, I, I've never, I guess I've never even really added up the years, but um, I started a long time ago. Let's count. Um, I would say... I don't even know. This is going to age me. Um, I started out right in college. Um, My first job was a medical records technician. So it was a multi-specialty clinic. And this is when medical records were rows and rows and rows of paper medical records. You would pull them every day from a list, um, send them out. You put them back. You would call the medical records. You'd pull out all that old stuff. Um, it was just really tedious, busy work. Um, and, and the rows of medical records went on for as far as you could see. Um, after that, I moved. Um, I moved from Iowa to Colorado. And I started working at a hospital there. Um, I, I moved to another medical records position at a residency program for a little while. Um, then I took a job across the street at the hospital while I was going to um, Colorado State to get my bachelor's degree in something not healthcare related. So my intention was not really to stay in healthcare to start with. Um, Medical records was just a thing that I did when I was in college in Iowa. Um, And then, you know, that's, that's what I knew. So when I moved to Colorado, that's what I kept doing. Moved across the street to the hospital and became a patient service rep in the, in the ER. So that was a really fun job. I worked third shift and third shift in the ER is just a crazy place to be. It's really, really fun, um, and especially in a college town. So that was really a good time. And I decided I kind of liked it, kind of liked seeing all the crazy things. And the system that I worked for really had um, an open door policy of shadowing. So if anything interested you in, within the healthcare system, anyone could shadow anyone else. Any job could shadow anyone else. If you wanted to watch a surgery, if there was, if you wanted to shadow with a nurse, you could, you could watch any other job. So that was a very cool thing. So a lot of us would watch different surgeries. We would round with doctors. We would watch the nurses. So that was, that, that kind of got me thinking, well, maybe, you know, what is, what is there out there for me to do, but still working on my bachelor's. So I'm working as a patient service rep. And then I start taking some, um, EMT classes. 
So then I start being a tech in the ER. So that's also very cool. Um, I'm still, you know, working on my, on my bachelor's. I leave to go to a private practice and I'm doing medical records stuff again. Still working on my bachelor's. Um, then I end up moving to a smaller town in Wyoming. So not a lot of opportunities, but in a small town, they're actually, um, with your education, that will get you very far because there's a smaller employment base. I end up being um, a dental assistant for a while, which was a really weird thing. But then I end up finding myself as a, man a billing and coding manager of a family practice which was something that I was like, okay, I guess I'll just figure this out as I go. <laughs> I learned there is that um, this was a place where all the doctors and APPs were doing their own coding, right? So they were just picking codes randomly. And I was, you know, doing the billing. I was doing the posting of payments. I was, you know, getting the bills, helping get the bills paid. And it just didn't seem right what was going on. I, I didn't really understand why the reimbursements were this or why the codes were this. So I just kind of started digging into it more. And that's when I realized that coding was a thing. You know, there was, that was a thing. Um, so that's kind of, that's how I got started into coding. But looking back, like I remember when we were kids growing up and in magazines and on TV commercials, there were always those commercials that were like, work from home, be a medical coder be a transcriptionist, you know, make all this money and work from home and set your own hours. And so that was always a thing too, growing up, but I never really thought about it, you know, well, and we'll get into this too. Some of that still comes into play now. So that's actually, I just took a really like weird path into getting into coding, honestly, which brings me to the healthcare system I work in now. Um, I'm still in West, the Western United States. I work for mid-sized healthcare, um, system. And I'm in general surgery. I work for the general surgery um, practice. And I also do physician education. So general surgery is definitely my love. Um, as you and I know, we work together in the general surgery Facebook group. And that's really, I love my surgeons. I'm a surgeon whisperer. That's what I've been deemed. Yeah. It's funny. Cause like for you, like, and I, I, I was in general surgery for a, a while but I would say ultimately like orthopedics is my baby. So that's where I am considered the whisperer, I guess, so to speak. But I, yeah, I think you like, are an orthopedic ortho whisperer and I have been picking up some ortho and I just, it's all just a foreign language to me. So you're like the guru there. <laughs> we have our little niches, right? And I have the same feeling like with my providers too. Like I just, I craved that provider relationship and there were some that kind of thought I was like trying to kiss up to the providers. I'm like, no, I'm just trying to learn. Like, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to do a good job. And, and I do feel for some of those coders out there who don't have access to the providers. There was a time in my career where I didn't, I worked for a remote company and we had like supervisors where if there was an issue with documentation, we had to communicate with them and they communicate with the provider. And so sometimes that communication got lost, but we were trying to ask versus what we were actually getting back. And that communication barrier was there. So sometimes it does lend itself to be better if you can actually converse with your provider directly. And so those are some of the issues I know some of you coders out there deal with, whether you're new or seasoned, and we get it. <laughs> we understand. It's a definite barrier when you have that middleman or when you just don't have access, when it's like, this is a documentation code from it and go. Right, exactly. 
And I mean, I, I wanted to be a medical coder, you know, for me, it was more of like, it was what I knew as far as in my family, because, you know, my cousin was already in, in patient coding. Uh, my aunt was the administrator or in administration at Whittier Presbyterian in California. So she was already well-established in the hospital and they both kind of just put that bug in my ear. So that's kind of like where I was at a high school. I think what I want to do with my life, I was thinking either legal or medical and and that's just where I ended up and just went that direction. I didn't want to work in the hospital necessarily. I liked the whole office type environment vibe that seemed interesting to me. So I went that way. Of course, now I got my CCS and now I can code both, <laughs> but, um, but I've only done professional like as a job. And, uh, but I think in today's industry, you know, people are choosing it. Like you said, that infomercial, you know, be a medical coder, work from home. And so that is a misconception. And what other misconceptions do you think people have about medical coding? You know, I think, um, I think some of it is pandemic driven, you know, pan the pandemic drove a, a lot of that. I do think so back in the day, it was, you know, the commercials were just very basic. And I think that, you know, we're both at the time of these commercials in the magazine things, we were too young, you know, we didn't really know, but I do remember, you know, the trade programs and stuff on TV, work from home, be a medical coder. Cool. All right. Well, that's still a thing that you can do. Um, but I think there are misconceptions about um, different salaries and, and working from home and things like, I'll see some, some people in forums being like, hey, I want to work from home so I can watch my kids. Um, I want to work from home and I think I can make X salary. Um, I want to work from home and make my own hours. And, you know, while you can, you know, there's a ton of us working from home. There's a ton of people that can work from home and be medical coders, but there's a lot you lose from working at home right out of the gate. Um, there's a misconception that you can always just, uh, you know, get a certification and work from home where we know that that's not true. Um, there are companies that will hire, but there are many more that want experienced coders before you work at home. And they're, uh, you know, working from home doesn't mean that you can watch your kids. You know, this is a job so that you, there are expectations that you are not watching your kids, that you're not providing care for elders. You know, you are finding childcare, things like that. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's because I've run into different companies too, where even in their description or if you go on the interview they tell you you know you have a flexible schedule but we would like you to be on the clock during these hours of the day because if you have to converse with someone you'll need to be able to communicate with them during the hours that you're working that they're working right and then you have caveats where like if you're in New York but the provider you're dealing with is in California like there could be some um, definite like time zone issues Right. Time zone issues for providers, time zone issues for meetings. Absolutely. And I still think, you know, the pandemic did prove that there were a lot of ways that coders could work from home efficiently. Um, and a lot of people did lose their, their jobs um, or they were able, they were let go or it just, the, the work wasn't there anymore because a lot of, of surgeries that were elective, for instance, for me, I lost a lot of work because a lot of my procedures were elective and those were canceled. So I didn't have a lot of stuff to do every day. Right. <laughs> so it was a lot of like maybe trying to find claims to work on. It wasn't straight coding every day. So there's, there's just different things that um, you run into. But I also think that the idea of why you want to be a medical coder should first and foremost be you enjoy the, the concept of what you're doing. It has nothing to do with where you're doing it. 
do you actually want to do this for a job, for a career, no matter where you sit, whether you're in an office or at home, right. you understand the importance of it, why we do it, um, how it affects patient care. And, you know, when I teach providers or just education in general, and I talk about, for instance, ICD-10 or risk adjustment, I'm talking about the medical necessity of a procedure. If you can't get paid, right, <laughs> which is our right. goal, right, to get paid, um, and you're losing all this money, how can you, uh, how can you keep the services in place for the, for the patients that need it, right? Um, if you find new technologies are coming about that are going to be really helpful for your patient population, but you don't have the money coming in, you can't maybe afford to purchase that nice, cool, techie device that's going to be more efficient. So if the money's not coming in, and the providers, you know, most of them don't have time to sit down and figure out the right codes. And they do the best they can trying to pull things here and there, but they could be missing coding opportunities they don't know about. Um, every year I go to conferences and I hear all these, these examples of missed opportunities of codes. And how can a provider keep up with all that? They don't have time for that. Absolutely. <laughs> Especially, you know, especially if you're working in a small, a small practice that's, that's mm -hmm. physician owned. And that's, that's where I came from um, when I moved into that position, you know, so they're a physician owned practice trying to compete with bigger practices. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they don't know, you know, they're just, they're just billing out a 99213, 99214, um, because that's what, you know, you open a book and that's what you see but they're not taking advantage of other opportunities, modifiers and things that, what else are you doing? What procedures are you doing? What modifier do you need to use to get your office visit and your procedure paid for? Um, what about exclusions with other insurance companies? What can't we do in the office? Things like that. And so it is a lot of lost revenue and especially for smaller physician owned practices, that's huge. And as a coder in any practice, whether it be something large, um, you know, huge practice or something small, where you fit in is that you are creating revenue for, you know, for everyone. You're, you're building sustainability for that practice, for that facility. And then you're helping your patients, you know, is something preventative, a preventative service that you're getting paid. So it's covered by that, that patient's benefit. So you're, you're, helping everyone. You're helping everyone be sustainable. You're being fiscally responsible. Um, there's just so many facets of that. And then, like you said, do you like the work that you do? Do you like being a problem solver? You know, you're putting little pieces together of puzzles. You're researching. There's just so many facets of the job that people don't get when you just say being a medical coder. Agree. And, you know, I want to kind of dig into some other things, but let's jump to that topic because one of the questions I wanted to ask is coders out there, do you know that you're more than a medical coder <laughs> when you get a job? Because when I think about bringing that into the exam piece, okay, you're going through a course, you hear this is a great career, whether you're going to work in the office or at home, you want to do this, right? So you decide to take a course and in the course, you have like all these multiple choice options, right? Just to pass an exam. And maybe you have some practical questions where you have to choose the code, right? Um, and so that can be construed as some experience because you're actually looking at documentation, what it, what it would appear to be looking like in the actual environment. But again, you get into that real world and you realize you can't just sit down and code a chart, submit the claim and everything's hunky-dory, 
like you know that there oh. is so much more to it than that. And I find so many coders get into the real world and that's where the questions come in, right? On our forums, they pass a test, they get a job and they have, then they were like froze, they freeze and they don't know what to do next because they weren't given proper training or maybe initially they didn't realize the scope of what they were up against. I mean, could you imagine a world where you code a chart and you submit a claim and it gets paid and it's just like wrapped up in a Christmas bowl like that. And that's all you do. I mean, I can't even imagine. Um, and if, if that's what it was, that would be great. But there are so many, there are so many things besides that, that you do so many hats that you wear, you know, you have those denials, you, there's so much research that you have to do about different things. Things are changing all the time. It's just a whirlwind. I feel like it's a whirlwind every day and I learn so much. And then there's so much that I didn't learn, you know, and there's so many times that I feel like, um, you know, you're getting denials back and you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know that. So then you're catching up on other things. So it, it's just a constant barrage of so, so many things. Exactly. And I, I've kind of like told myself, I want to learn as much as I can, but I also know that if I'm going to be efficient in, in what I do, I have to kind of focus on a targeted area that I'm, that I can focus on. Um, and so it's hard to, to get into a world sometimes where you're doing everything. Like for me, like I've been in surgery so long that it's so hard for me to like, if someone asks me a question about home health or someone asks me a question about some of these other E&M categories, I've, I don't only really have a lot of experience with or vaccines sometimes. I've never worked in primary care personally. I know how to code them, but I don't know all the ins and outs of different pay requirements and stuff. So I have to like dig in and research, but I'm not afraid of that. I just have to know that I'm not an expert in this at this moment, but I'm not afraid to dig in research. And that's where, where I think it really make the difference between someone who really wants this as a career and someone who's just doing it for a job. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. You know, general surgery being my wheelhouse. Um, if you ask me a general surgery thing, I love it. I want to help you do any sort of general surgery procedure. I, you know, that's what I want to talk about. That's what I light up about. Ask me about general surgery, please. Do not ask me about a primary care thing. You know, like you said, the vaccines. Um, do not ask me about neurology. I do not know. I will help you. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'll look at your op note and I'll tell, you know, help you research it and whatever you need help with. But I, I, that's not my wheelhouse. That's not my area of expertise, but I will absolutely help you. And, you know, um, people hate denials. I don't mind them. You know, denials are what they are, but they're pretty standard. You know what those denial codes mean across the board. So we can, you know, that's another thing that I'm like, well, let's, let's do that. I'll help you look at those. Um, because we can figure that out. Mm -hmm. If you know the coding part of it, I'll help you with the rest of it. Absolutely. Yeah. They're pretty standard across the board. The denial reason, regardless of the, of the specialty is going to be very similar, you know, coverage guidelines weren't met. Of course, that could mean LCD policies. There could also be issues with no prior authorization, which I want to get into next. Like, that is something that is my biggest pet peeve. And I understand both sides of it now. I've worked as a administration in a practice where I was responsible for the behind the scenes, like figuring out why we weren't getting paid, 
Providers want to see AR reports. They want to see where they're at. And so I'm looking at these things and on a deeper level, I'm talking to the clinical staff and I see both sides of it. I understand when you're scheduling surgeries, you have all these providers that are trying to schedule at the same time, the same facility, right? And so they're trying to get this OR time. And so they're trying to maneuver back and forth, trying to get this scheduled. And then here is the coder over here or the biller be like, you can't do this until I get it approved. We're like, no, we have to at least get it scheduled because we won't have a spot if we, if we don't. And so it's a constant back and forth. So I get both sides of it, but there has to be some organization, right? Like if for some reason, yes, you put it on the schedule for three weeks from now, maybe in a week from that time, you still don't have an authorization. Um, is your staff, you know, are they being diligent to check on that regularly? Have they let it go for two weeks and not check back? Like, are they being proactive? Or is it just a situation that's just taking that long and you have to call the patient and say, hey, we didn't get approved yet. We're probably gonna have to push you out another week. And so those are things that can happen. But what is the, is the problem is how much risky is it to go ahead and do it without getting the approval? Yeah. And I agree with that. And, you know, we recently had one that we, we had to keep pushing out, keep pushing out because um, of the payer. Um, and, and it's frustrating, but it was a high dollar surgery. And the risk was, do we, do we go with it and hope it goes through or do we write off something that's high dollar? And so the risk was, you know, not good to us. So we, we pushed it out and finally we, we got the off and it was a good thing that we did um, because we did trouble on the insurance end that we needed to keep working on and, and appeal and appeal and appeal. And so we did the right thing by pushing it out. I completely agree because when you look at all of the data out there, all of the write-offs that happen, like that are so unnecessary, you know, you could have waited a few more days. Um, and we understand there are emergencies and usually that is not a big deal. Like the hospital is going to understand if they ask for what, for the authorization today to, to like schedule the surgery, or at least to check on it, you tell them it's an emergency. We have to go. Like there's some things you can't wait on. Um, it's the patient's life at stake. And so that has to be understood, but then there's elective things, right. That they're not like mandatory right now. They can wait a couple of weeks. They're not going to die. <laughs> so those are different things to think about. And so that's kind of my thought process there. So this kind of gives you out there coders an idea of uh, when you get into the working world, you're not just coding. You have to know all these payer guidelines. You have to know for, let's say for instance, um, you and I both work have worked um, in plastic type procedures at times. And you know, like that is a big deal because sometimes they can be approved, sometimes they can't. And you have to know each individual payer, Blue Cross Blue Shield, they will let you have it done for these reasons. or United Healthcare says one of these codes has to be on the claim and, or they have to have this from another provider, this letter showing medical necessity. And so that is something to think about. It's not just code it what CPT says, you have to know what the payer says. Absolutely. And otherwise no one's getting paid. Um, and then I think being in the back end of things, looking at the cost of running their practice, which is what I had to do it sometimes. And it's not just the code getting paid. It's okay. You didn't get the authorization. So now what happens? I've already paid out FTE hours for my clinical staff. I'm paying, you know, my provider, paying my, all these other staff members, um, the time, right? The supplies, the, everything that goes into getting that procedure paid. If you don't get it paid, you lost money and you've just kind of 
brought that into another realm of, of debt, so to speak, because you still had to pay your employees for the time, but you're not getting reimbursed. Exactly. Completely agree with that. Those things are not taken into consideration when you, when you think about, oh, it's, we'll just write it off, you know, but why <laughs> when you could have waited just a few more days? Right. Uh, things that can completely be prevented. Um, and I, and we do see that a lot in the medical field, you know, you take a write off and, and you look back, um, you didn't get a pre-auth or, um, you know, there's things that we can, there are a lot of things we can correct on the back end. You know, we do have that timely filing window where we can make a lot of corrections. There's not a lot of things that we can't fix, but there are some things that we can't fix. And those are the things that we need to prevent, um, in order to just stop taking those silly write-offs on things. Absolutely. So now let's move on to talk about something that I know a lot of people have questions about, and that is just the certifications in general. Like I get a lot of questions about different certifications. Okay, what's the difference? And I, you know, I have to step back and think at one point in my career, I was that person and I did not know what a CPC was versus a CCS versus these other organizations offer coding credentials. And I can't just sit there and tell you which one's best for you because I don't know what you want to attain. Like, what do you want to do? Like, where, where do you feel most comfortable? Do you think you want to work in an office like with an actual doctor's office or do you want to work in a hospital setting? Where, do you want to work, you know, in risk adjustment? Do you want to work where, you know, what do you want to do? And where do you feel the most comfortable? And then I, then I go in and explain the different credentials. So it's, it's, it's hard to know where to, to go unless you know what they are. I agree with that. And another thing um, I think that's important is I see a lot of people will say, I just got my CPC. What should I get next? (laughs) Well, you know, I, it's not about racking up credentials, Um, especially, you know, right out of the gate. What's important is for you to get, you know, to get experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those credentials are not, not going to help you if you don't have experience absorb what you just did. (laughs) And for me, like, you know, and most of the time they do tell you when you go on the websites, whatever organization it is, they recommend having so much years. And, you know, I know one of the organizations in the last year or so removed the requirements of having experience and having a degree and this kind of stuff. So it's not required anymore. It's recommended. And that's, there's a reason for that because you're going to have a harder time finding work if you don't have a job or if you don't have experience Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means that you're going to have to find a way to get in the system somehow, whether it's doing what we did, right? Start from the bottom, work your way up. Don't just feel like you have to have that coder title right out the gate because it doesn't always work that way. Um, right. Those are my, my thoughts on that. But let's just talk about it, for instance. Like, and this is a mis- misnomer. When I teach the inpatient coding um, cur- curriculum, I have to explain to people, for instance, the CCS that's offered with AHIMA, so that's the Certified Coding Specialist, and AHIMA is the American Health Information Management Association. They are an accredited organization. They're also one of the cooperating parties that comes up with the IC10-CM guidelines, so they are definitely an accredited organization, great place to get a credential, and they have options for what we would expect to do in the office, like provider, the professional side. And that's another thing people don't understand is there's what called professional fee coding, and then you have the facility coding they're split. But the nice thing with the CCS exam I love is you get to test on all the code sets. Like you test on CPT, you test the ICD-10-CM, 
um, PCS, and compliance, billing, NCCI, you learn all of that stuff. So those are things I kind of tell them. It's like, you think about when you're in the hospital, you get in a room and you have all these supplies. And there's, there was codes for that, but they're testing you on these basic principles. There's other credentials that test you on those things. It's a lot, right? Like for a new person to like sit there and wrap their minds around all of these different coding systems and to try to make a decision on like, where should I, I focus my attention? Like that, I'm sure it's overwhelming. Yeah, that, and, and just listening to that explanation is a lot. It is, when right? Yeah. And that's out the of best I could do to explain it. I'm like, oh gosh, what? Exactly, right? And so the first step I say is first understand, you know, coding in general, what are you doing, right? So you tell me, like, if I were to ask you, what, if I'm going to be a medical coder, what is on a basic level, what is my job? So... I, the way I like to explain what I do. So I'm a professional coder. So how I, how I like to explain what I do is I say, I, I work for surgeons. They perform a procedure. I read their notes and then I translate that into a code that I'll then send to the insurance company. Um, the insurance company pays us for that procedure. And then that payment pays the surgeons for their services. Mm -hmm. um, it's very good explanation. Yes, that's perfect because that is literally what, what our goal is, right? Now there's other things that we talked about earlier, right? That come into all of those other variables like payer guidelines and things like that. Mm -hmm. But a very basic level, that's what we're doing. And same thing for the inpatient side. So I'll, I'll back up to the other side now. That's professional fee. You're getting, the surgeon's getting paid for his uh, professional service for doing that, right? But the facility has to get paid too because they have this huge hospital they have all these rooms, all of these staff, supplies, machines, all the stuff they're using to take care of the patient while they're in the hospital. And that's a completely different animal on its own. And you know, as a professional fee coder, you bill each individual visit, right? Hospital bills, the whole state. And that is why it gets to be a little more complicated for inpatient coders because they, they bill by the, the stay and the, the fees that are attached to the principal diagnosis and the principal procedure that cause the admission. So those are things that are completely over the head of someone maybe that has never gone down that road. Um, and for me, I wanted to know, I wanted to be on both sides. That was always my goal. I wanted to kind of know the full picture. So if someone asked me, or if I wanted to have a, take a break for instance, I want to try something new, I would at least have a background or at least have some kind of knowledge of it. So that's kind of where I come from it as, you know, I love the whole revenue cycle. I just really love it. Um, but some people just, you know, they just don't know where to start. And that's where we want to be helpful. You know, think about what, what you, you're passionate about. Um, do you feel like going into inpatient code will be too much to handle? For me, I'm glad I did professional fee first before I tackled that exam on inpatient coding and decided to teach it <laughs> because now it's like, I feel so much more prepared. I understood this part. Now I can put it together for someone and I can say, Hey, this is how you compare the two. This is why they're different and so forth. Absolutely. And, you know, I have the inpatient coders, we work in tandem together, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so I think that those gals that I work with are wizards. I mean, I don't, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. It's not thing. I don't understand it at all. Um, and I have a girl that, you know, she's been coding on inpatient side for 40 years 
and she can come cross over and do CPT on my side. She can do profi, um, but it's a lot for her to cross over and come back to my side. You know, she has to think about it a little bit, um, but we work in tandem together. And so that's, you know, that's kind of a nice thing, you know? So when I just gave a very, very bare bones explanation of profi coding, um, yeah. but like I said, so I, you know, I'm getting the, the physician, the surgeon paid for his skills and knowledge, what he went to school for, um, mm -hmm. where you're getting the facility paid for their, you know, if you think of it very basic, their building and what yeah. they have, their equipment, their, you know, their nurses that are helping during that surgery, their surgical techs, they're right. laying on that table, laying in that OR. So just mm -hmm. a very basic thing, but yeah, to, to dive into that inpatient world, I mean, I would have been so confused and it still is a very intimidating thing when I look over their shoulder and I'm like, what, what is going on with all that? And they'll be like, oh, you know, that's, don't, that's covered by, you know, whatever they're the DRG. And I'll be like the, yeah. And talk to me about a DRG, you know, I don't even, <laughs> I know whenever I explain it, I have yeah. to like, stop I, um, yeah. but that's always something that has intrigued me about, about your side. You know, that when I say that to those girls, like, oh, you know, the, the HP, the facility side. Um, but yeah, I mean, Profi is, is where is my home, but yeah, that inpatient side is definitely something that I think is, is, can be pretty intimidating. So breaking just that simple part down for somebody beginning for who's beginning, who wouldn't even know that that exists. How would you know? Yeah, unless you asked or you learned about it somehow and and you need someone who understands it or at least on a very basic level can tell you what it is and then you can go ahead and do research and you can figure out okay is this for me where do I want to be and another question people has is how much am I get paid they want to know how much they're gonna get paid right which is which always is, a thing you know we all have bills to pay yeah we're doing this to better our lives you know you know have a job where we can find passion but also be paid for, for what we're worth. Right. And for me, like getting credentials, it wasn't about always the money because my boss told me from the beginning, like you can add these credentials, but you're not going to get paid anymore. Like, right. like it wasn't going to pay. You know, getting, um, you know, I'm a CGSC just like you are. Um, and that wasn't a thing that was going to get me more money. Mm -hmm. That was a personal issue for me to gain more knowledge in my wheelhouse. And that's what it will always be as I add those credentials. Right. Exactly. Just show that I've done, the, I've, I've researched and I understand the concept. I understand these, this area. And that's always what it's been about. Like when I went to ophthalmology, I've been doing ophthalmology a long time. And that was like my first specialty when I became a receptionist, that was the first thing I ever did. And so to me, it clicked. And I understood it. And then I got general surgery. And then of course those were specialties, right? But then they have these other credentials that with APC, the American Academy of Professional Coders, that kind of highlight other, other skills you might have, have attained. And they're gonna say recommended because they want you to at least show you've had some experience because they're not gonna really do you any good if you can't show your employer, like you said, that you have experience in this, like auditing or um, documentation improvement or risk adjustment, you know? But um, for risk adjustment, that's a really great one actually because he doesn't have an apprentice designation. You don't have to gain experience um, before you can get this apprentice designation removed. Like it's, 
it's free and clear you because it's ic10 coding you can just learn it and take a test and a lot of companies are hiring you and they'll train you which brings me to our next question right like what's up with the training right <laughs> like what do you think is behind it? i mean i understand it's hard to find time um what are some of the things you think that are holding people back from offering to train new coders so let me tell you when i started the the place that i'm ultimately working now um, you know, I started the coding course through AAPC when I was with that um, family practice, okay? But then they ultimately sold to one of the major healthcare orgs in the country. Um, and then I moved to where I'm at now. So I started, um, I applied for a coding job and I didn't, you know, have a ton of experience in that, but that's what I was working through. Um, and so when I started um, truly coding, I didn't have a cert. Um, but I started with the healthcare system and they trained, um, there was four new, there's four of us brand new and they trained us, um, as we went along and then we sat for our certs. So there's, you know, companies that are willing to train. And I think that that's awesome because one, you're learning the system, the way they want you to learn, you're learning their payers, you're learning their Medicare carriers, you're learning their EMRs, but on the flip side of that, there's companies like the contract companies who, um, for those of you that don't know, those are remote companies, healthcare systems hire them, outsource their work to them to do their coding. And those are companies that generally want you to have X amount of um, years of experience right out of the gate. Um, and that's because they don't, they don't want to take the time to train you, you know, these companies want, want you to just hit the ground running. Um, and that's, you know, that's what their, their contracts want from them. Um, they don't want to take the time and that's fine if that's what they want, but I don't think, um, that it really takes away from taking time out to train new employees. I really don't. And in the end, I think it's, it's more valuable really um, to keep long-term employees. I mean, all of us that started um, are still there with the exception of one girl that moved away. So you're training long-term employees, even if they're brand new to start with. I totally agree. And that's the thing is too, like when I recently had the opportunity to hire people, believe it or not, I didn't even hire a certified coder. I hired someone who had experience, but I've also hired people who were brand new. Like um, I had one of my students who, um, I hired and I even hired someone that I, that I knew that um, had experience in another industry, but she didn't have any experience in medical, but I wanted to train her from the ground up. I wanted her to, to, to learn everything. So I've had the opportunity to, to give back and do that. And it's a gradual process. Yes. But you give them the tools, you give them gradual training, um, you know, like what they can handle. And you maybe have one person who's experienced, they can handle this another person you're training and, and that they're going to eventually be that person that you can rely on if that other person's out <laughs> or goes to vacation. You, know, you have these options and how are we going, to, if you don't hire any of these new people, by the time this other person retires, who's going to be there to take the place of them? Like if we don't continue to, to offer this opportunity to new and upcoming talent, how are they going to be there when the other ones decide to leave? Right. And one of my one of my bosses always says, you know, says to us when we're like cross training, you know, at first we were all very protective of our specialties, you know, cause we all have it. 
ego and nobody can do it better than me. Right. Of course. Um, yeah. <laughs> and he would always say, Crystal, what happens if somebody hit, you know, what if, what if you get hit by a bus, who's going to do the work? So it's the same, it's the same concept, right? We need to have, we need to have people in the pipeline that can help us. Like we need to take vacation days. Um, why not, why not have those people and why not build from within so that we can hopefully keep those people for a very long time. Right. Exactly. Now, gosh, this is the, the topic of all topics that we all get on social media platforms is it's too expensive. I need all these CEUs and I can't afford them and this and that, and the membership keeps going up and this and that and complaining about this. But I, I want to take a step back. If you're new to coding and you're not up on this concept and how expensive it is to maintain a credential, I want to step back and think about it. On a very basic level, when you were a kid, maybe possibly you, your parents talked about saving money to send you to college, right? So like they're saying, okay, like it's going to cost this much money to send you to college. They're saving their entire life to send you to a university to get an education so you could be successful, right? Just because you don't have to go to a university to attain a coding credential doesn't mean it's any less valuable than going to a university. Absolutely. And it's just been a big pet peeve of mine that this career we've chosen that we love has become something that is not valuable to people as far as a monetary value. They, they don't put the value on it. It's, it's a cheap career to them because they can just get free CEUs. That's not the case because a lot of us, hey, me included, I have personally decided to get seven credentials. I want to keep growing. And it's not cheap to do that, uh, to keep those credentials. It's a career. Doctors have to get education units every year. Nurses have to keep their education up. We're in, a, in an industry where that is required. So no, it's part of the gig. And it shows your employer that yes, I'm getting certified because I value education and knowledge. I'm going to keep growing, but you don't have to have a credential, right? I mean, like, do you know people that have been coding for a long time that had never been certified? Absolutely. One of the, one of the, um, inpatient coders, um, and she actually works, um, she's considered a facility coder, but she does the outpatient side of it. So she, um, you know, she's just not a good test taker, but yeah. she can, she has been coding for forever and mm -hmm. she's an ortho wizard like you as well. <laughs> um, Outcode me any day of the week. And I, like I said, but she's been doing it for a long time too, but I mean, she's awesome. She just doesn't have that, those letters behind her name. Exactly. And that's, that's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with not having it. And like I said, the girl that I hired recently, she is not a certified coder, but she's been coding as long as I have. Like we, we started health coders around the same time. And so she has a knowledge, not just in coding, but billing for authorizations, the whole gamut. Like she knows what to do to get a claim paid. And that's what it's all about. Like, and she's not afraid to research, not afraid to dig in. That's the kind of person that I know will survive this industry. Someone who's willing to adapt and change with technology, change with whatever the industry brings. And, and that is what is definitely needed. So that's just kind of one of the things I like to, to think about when I think about that. Now, let me ask you this personally, what do you think could help someone who is deciding to get a credential or not get a credential? Like, for instance, for you, what do you want next? 
so, you know, I don't, I don't know. I've thought about this, you know, there's a, there's a part of me that really, like, I'm really passionate about physician education. So there's, there's a path for me in my org um, that I, that I've been exploring, but it's really like, I'm also really love my surgeon group. Okay. So I think, you know, to stay in my current position, um, I think a next cert for me would be like the GI cert because yeah. you, we know that general surgeons also do a ton of GI stuff. Right. Exactly. Especially we don't have, um, within our, within our org, we don't have G, a GI group. There's a GI group in town, but our general surgeons do a ton of GI. Right. So that, that makes sense to me. So that, um, I think that that is, is the thing that interests me most because I do that. You know, and a lot of my continuing education is GI stuff. So like that would be um, a natural path for me for like an additional next certification. Right. And for me, like I, when I got risk adjustment, it wasn't like I was doing it yet. And I wasn't even, it wasn't on my radar. I wanted to, I had been auditing for a while and I wanted to see PMA, the certified professional medical auditor. But my boss said, I asked her like, you know, what would you prefer me to get? Cause they're paying for it. So I was like, sure. Tell me what you want. And so she said, CRC. And so I did it. I went and got my CRC fully anticipating then, you know, she said, well, we'll get you in that. And didn't happen. Like something happened and it didn't work out. I got my CRC and then I'm like, well, I still want my CPA. <laughs> so I ended up getting that later. And, and that's just kind of how it evolved. But, you know, I never intended to get something I didn't have experience. And it was just at the time what they told me I should get because they wanted to use me in that way. Even though it didn't work out, I'm so glad I got it because I learned a lot and I learned by doing it, that it's just something that I actually love. I love the idea of risk adjustment. And then when I started teaching, um, people couldn't find jobs. And then I would be like, okay, well, have you heard about this? And one of the things I love about risk adjustment is that if you're a nurse, for instance, and you are tired of being on your feet and you want a job where you can work from home, have flexibility, a lot of people are moving into risk adjustment because it's, it's what they know. They already know the clinical indicators. They know chronic diseases. They know this stuff and they can use their clinically trained knowledge to now help uh, improve um, the, the healthcare system through capturing data that's important. And uh, that's what I love about it. And the more I learn about it, the more I love it and how important it is um, for all people that are in healthcare to understand the data we collect and how it affects reimbursement. Absolutely. And I really like a passion of mine too is teaching. Like I love to educate people. So you know, taking the instructor course, maybe, I don't know if that's a path, you know, for me, but like that, um, I do like that idea, you know, it ties in also with my passion for educating the physicians, um, yeah. that their possible step, but, um, and I want to circle back to something when we were talking about sure. the C, um, and I want to stress this to people that are listening to this about getting your CEUs. Yes, and it's something that a teacher said to me in grade school, and it's always stuck with me. And it's this uh, regarding your CEUs, proper prior planning prevents poor performance. You're going to have a due date for your CEUs. You're going to know what that due date is. Do not wait until the last minute to try to find your CEUs and then post online that you need 12 in the next week. <laughs> plan on, yes. ahead especially if you do not want to pay for them 
that's usually there, what's going to happen plenty of free resources and if you plan ahead you can get your ceus for free as long as you keep up on them but if you wait until the last minute that's going to be a problem this is not Absolutely. a plan ahead Absolutely. And um, I will say, let's just say you just have your CPC, you know that you need 18 CEUs per year. Now, maybe you don't turn them in for two years, but the first year you need 12 or sorry, 18. So, you know, for instance, if you're a member of the AAPC, which you have to be, of course, to be certified, um, you're going to get that magazine in the mail, right? Every month there's going to be an article and there's yeah. going to be a quiz in there and that's going to be worth one CEU. Then you've got what? 12, right? Yes, you got it. Right. But then you also have what you have your APC virtual meetings. Yeah. So let's say you need six. There's only that six meetings a year you have to attend. So for a basic level, like one certification coder, which there's a lot of you out there, that is free CEUs. You know, if you plan that right. But maybe you can't go to the meetings and we understand that. So there are times where maybe you'll have to pay for six or you may have to reach out to other organizations. And there are organizations out there that offer programs um, where you can, you know, listen to a recording. I offer CEUs from my podcast. Like there's, there's places you can go that are not as expensive, but don't do it because of the cost. Do it because you want the education right. <laughs> um, right. and you know it's going to advance your career. And, you know, now with um, so many chapters having virtual meetings, that's such a great resource because you can look and see, you know, what, what topic is somebody in whatever chapter doing? Um, oh my gosh, that's something that really interests me. You know, I also have um, an ENT surgeon. So I found a chapter that was doing specifically an ENT presentation that month. And that was awesome for me. I was so excited. It was last year, actually, right around the time when we were doing ENT virtual summit. So yeah. I was as done just getting more ENT education. And I was like, hey, so you can pop into people's virtual meetings now, pick yeah. up those use, and you can find uh, so much more education. The world has opened up with education with meetings being virtual now. Absolutely. It's such a great thing. And, you know, I think, Crystal, we just totally just, I think, rocked the world of so many people today. And I just, I hope anyway, that we got through to people and understand. And if we can leave people with these final thoughts, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you my closing summation in this courtroom drama and <laughs> you can give yours, right? And I'm just gonna say, stop complaining about organizations on social media. That's my biggest pet peeve. Um, stop complaining about CEUs being so expensive. Know what organization you have to get them from and do your due diligence, like Crystal said, and plan ahead. <laughs> Don't be procrastination. Life happens, we understand, but do your best. Do the best you can to keep that credential so you can avoid taking that test again, right? So just please, please, please uh, respect the organizations, respect what you do, and respect the time you've spent attaining this, and be patient with yourself, be patient with the industry as it continues to evolve, um, and just do the best you can. Um, be a good researcher and don't think that it's going to come overnight. You're not going to be a crystal or a Jennifer tomorrow. You're going to have to um, find a way to learn it and don't be afraid to research. Google is not your enemy. It can actually help you. And that's just really all I want to say, at least right now, right? So Crystal, what do you want to say? You know, I want to say that, you know, medical coder, 
that just seems like, you know, if you refer back to the very, very basic explanation that I gave, but really it's so, it's so much more than that once you get into it. And um, I'm sorry that a lot of places do a disservice and don't explain that. Um, but reach out and do some research, you know, reach out to us if you have questions, but you wear so many hats, you know, you're a researcher, you're an educator, um, you're putting together puzzles and it's really, you're doing a lot. You're doing a lot to maintain fiscal health and fiscal responsibility for your organization. And you're doing so much to help your patients when you are coding things correctly for them. Um, you're just really like a financial lifeline for so many, for so many people. Um, and it's really such a great responsibility. And, um, if you think that this is a thing that you're interested in, or if you're already, uh, you know, starting out being a coder, if you're a seasoned coder, like this is such a great industry to be in. So, you know, we're glad you're here. We're glad that you shared this time with us and we hope you learned something or you at least, you know, thought that we were fun to hang out with for this time. And I'm just happy to be here with my friend, Jennifer, and I'm glad she invited me. And I hope that we can get together with you again and, and hang out. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Crystal, for joining today. And I really appreciate all the insights you offer. And I just look forward to more conversations with you, whether it's uh, on social media or wherever. And maybe we'll catch each other at HealthCon this summer. Who knows? But uh, we'll talk to you on the flip side. Thank you for joining the, the conversation today. Thanks, Jennifer. Well, I want to thank my special guest, Crystal, for joining the show today. What a great conversation we had about the future of medical coding and, of course, how to be successful in your journey as a medical coder. This has been Jennifer McNamara with the Life as a Coder podcast. And as I always say, knowledge is power. The knowledge you gain today makes you powerful tomorrow. We want to thank our members for continuing to support us here at the Life as a Coder podcast. And please keep sending us your topics for future episodes. I want to thank our sponsors over at Ozark Institute, powered by OncoSpark, and our amazing podcast producer, Gabriel Fass with Highland Productions. Until next time. Thanks for joining the Life as a Coder podcast. Please feel free to rate or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate that effort. It helps us share the show with other healthcare professionals just like you. Join us next Wednesday for another episode. We'll catch you then.